Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. Hey the, folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council Podcast, where you explore mental health and your favorite fictional characters. This is your graduate student co-host, Brandon Saxton. And Katie Gordon. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm doing great because we're going to have a special expert guest on today, and I am always excited when we have special expert guests. Absolutely. We had a series of them, and we're making a triumphant return to our, our is guestbert? A, a, can I? Is that a real word? I, guest I think so. If it's not, it is now. It feels kind of clunky though. Maybe guest expert, guest expert. I don't know. But we're back there today. We'll work. We'll workshop that a little bit more. <laughs> Should have probably done it before I started recording, but <laughs> that's the nature of this podcast. Right. It, it just is what it is, and I barely know how to edit it. So. <laughs> Uh, well, Katie, you know our guest better today, so I'm going to leave the introduction to you if you don't mind. Okay. Well, today's special guest is Leonardo Bobadilla, who has a PhD in clinical psychology from Florida State University, which is where I went to graduate school. And I was fortunate enough to work with Dr. Bobadilla at practicum placements and overlapping in classes and things like that. And we did a previous episode about paraphilic disorders and talked a little bit about how I had about 10 years ago now worked doing therapeutic type interventions and assessments with individuals who had been convicted of sex offenses. They were adolescents, and I worked with Leo at that um, place. But since then, Leo has done more work in the area with people who have been convicted of sex offenses and really is an expert, and so I wanted to go into more depth today with that. So maybe Leo, you could tell us, start off just telling us a little bit more about what you're, what you've been doing since grad school and some of your experience in treating people who have been convicted of sex offenses. Sure. Grace, well, let's thank you for having me as your expert and uh, <laughs> very, expi- very excited to be here. I think I do. I, I like the portmanteau. I think you should put a trademark or something on okay. that. I think expert <laughs> is absolutely um, so let's see. So yeah, so I've, as you mentioned, I, we worked together in a juvenile facility. It was at the time called a level 10 facility for uh, adolescents who have been engaging in sex offenses. And we did that for about two years or yeah, two practical rotations. And then after that, I went into academia and North Carolina and I, my area of research has basically been, I, I'm generally interested in aggression, you know, broadly speaking and mostly disorders characterized by um, uh, aggression in general, but mostly proactive aggression. So it tends to include sex offenses as well and being very interested in both the the, interact, the the intersection between sex and aggression. That's kind of my niche. And I was lucky enough to, uh, after about five years as a faculty member in North Carolina, I decided to move to the West Coast and get a position uh, at a state hospital, at the Oregon State Hospital, which is famous slash infamous because it was where uh, one of Lou of the Cuckoo's Nest was filmed. 
uh, that was the location, but the, the hospital has gone on an incredible renovation and it's in many ways leading in many ways mental health treatment uh, for people with severe mental illnesses. And they have a sex offender unit. And that's where I did my postdoctoral residence uh, in order to become licensed here in Oregon. And I worked in the sex offender treatment unit, um, the SOTP. And the people who were in the SOTP were people who had been declared uh, uh, not guilty except insane, which is Oregon's version of uh, NGRI, or not guilty, not guilty by reason of insanity. And it's a really interesting area because um, in psychology, and this you, got, you guys know, and probably your, a lot of listeners know, there's some psychological disorders that we have a better handle on treatment. So by and large, depression and anxieties, we kind of know how to treat and we have a pretty good body of literature that tells us how to how to proceed when people have these disorders. But when it comes to sex offense, uh, sex, uh, sexual behavior and sexual disorders, we, it's really, it's kind of the cutting edge of our science that we don't know as much and there's not as much research and resources dedicated to that area as other areas. So things like schizophrenia or autism that get a lot of attention and rightly so. Um, the research resources are not quite as much for sex offense, uh, for sexual disorders, and which include um, paraphilic and sexual offending behaviors. So there's a there's a big void in that, which makes it a very exciting area to be in because it really gives there's a lot of opportunity to work in there. So I was able to learn a lot about what's being done in the field, some of the organizations, and, and what are the where we've been in the field. It has been it's come a lot from for, from a treatment perspective. It comes a lot from the perspective a little bit on how other addictions were treated. So a lot of kind of twelve step, a lot of denial, you know, guilt, and trying to get people to get over the denial and recent data is just kind of showing um, that those those approaches do not tend to work as well and in fact uh, things like you know, whether a person engages in the denial or not is really unrelated to recidivism so the findings on the research tend to be counterintuitive to, toward uh, counter uh, uh, towards what the clinicians tend to do in the field uh, and it's kind of where we're at there. Uh, there's a lot of cognitive behavioral approaches that are being used to treat this, but also a lot of uh, risk um, risk mitigation and trying to figure out how to manage the disorder rather than cure it per se. The idea that we can actually uh, cure this sort of make it disappear, it's not really there, but more how can we get the person to manage these impulses that they have, whatever they may be, uh, in order to live a happy, productive life and not reoffend, uh, depending on that. So that's kind of where we're at. But because there is such, um, as you know, you know, uh, comorbidity is the rule rather than the exception for disorder, psychological disorders, and that goes also for sex offend, uh, sex offending behavior and paraphilias. You have people who have, you know, a sex, a sexual disorder or paraphilia in addition to uh, schizophrenia or a severe mental disorder, which really makes it extra challenging. And so that's, I spent about a year and a half uh, at the hospital doing, finishing my residence and I conducted treatment with people who were low risk and higher risk, which is uh, kind of when tend to be the division in treatment. You tend to, it's a good idea to divide people who are low risk versus those who are higher risk because they kind of, uh, the interventions that you're going to give them are going to vary depending on the uh, on their risk and their needs that they're going to have. So risk is one way which is divide them. Um, 
low risk and high risk. I, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Maybe you were going to go into this, so I'm sorry if I. Have yeah, yeah. Up no, it. please do, because I'm going to soliloquy over here. No, <laughs> no, it's it's very interesting. A couple um, things that I just popped out at me. One thing is, what are the major factors that you look at when you're? You mentioned that, for example, denial or admission of having um, convicted the sex offense doesn't seem related as people once thought. What are some of the factors that actually seem scientifically to be related to high risk or low risk of reoffending? Yeah. So some of the measures that the, the measures that are most used that, that, um, that looked at various factors have been studied and that uh, have narrowed down factors that are related to recidivism are actually funny enough, uh, gender and age. So we know that males in general tend to be a higher risk, but that's a very, it's a very broad uh, category. So that one, you know, kind of, we understand that males are going to be at risk, but age is one of the one of the main ones. So we know that men below the age of forty tend to be at a higher risk. So that's a strong predictor. Having offenses against the, for example, against strangers tends to have, be associated with higher risk as opposed to lower risk. The overwhelming majority, and this is perhaps one of the sobering aspects about sex offenses, is that many the majority of the offenses uh, that are committed are not by somebody kind of hiding in the bushes and being stalking somebody and just jumping out and abducting somebody. Um, unfortunately, the majority of them are committed by somebody who knows the victim. And if you think about kind of the headlines or newspapers and you can see um, when there's a reports on sex offenses, you often see things like our coaches or uncles or relative. Those are the kind of the, the persons that are engaging the majority of the sex offenses. So the people who tend to engage in um, offenses against strangers, so those who do attack people who do, they do not know, they tend to be at higher risk for recidivism. Uh, people who uh, attack, who have uh, same same gender victims, so men who tend to have male victims, they tend to be at higher risk. Um, some other factors, and depending on the measure, uh, in some cases the, there's debate whether mental illness may or may not increase the risk. Um, I tend to think that it probably does, depending on the on the disorder. Um, but things like uh, severe mental illness uh, can increase risk and definitely the introduction of other destabilizers like substance use absolutely increases the risk of um, recidivism. And another one would be uh, antisocial personality disorder, which I know you guys have talked about before in the podcast, but essentially it's a disorder characterized by uh, irresponsibility, impulsivity and uh, recklessness and unwillingness to um obey laws and norms so those are high those are, those are risk factors that have been consistently being associated with higher risk of recidivism on the so on the other on the other hand people who tend to have offen uh, offenses that are later in life so they start offending later in life and they offend somebody who may be in their own family or somebody they know and of the same gender and not a child they tend to be of lower risk okay well that's yeah. helpful. So the way that they do that is they they measure those variables and then they look for empirical links to exactly. Okay. okay. Yeah. So one of the um yeah you know, just to give you an example. So one of the most widely used measures of sexual recidivism is called the static, which is an actuarial measure that has narrowed down this this factors that includes all of the ones that I've that I've talked about. And you basically go through the person's file, you interview them, you don't have to interview them, but it's helpful if you do. But you go through the file and does the person have these factors? How many victims have they had? How how and have they had previous offenses? Have they had contact offenses? So people who ex engage in exhibitionism versus hands-on offenses. And you tally those up and then those give you an actuarial risk 
uh, level for the person based on a comparison to thousands of other offenders that have been studied in order to develop the measure. Wow, that sounds like a really useful tool, especially in light of the fact that you said this area tends to be underfunded. Why Why do you think this area tends to be underfunded as compared to schizophrenia yeah. or society? You know, that's a, that's a good question. I don't think I can give you a, an empirical answer to that. My impression is that it's not... There's a there's a stigma attached with sex and certainly with sexual violence and I it's you can rally people to give money for or funding for uh, children who have conditions or things that are you know it's very easy to feel sorry or compassion for people who have things like schizophrenia or disorders that are definitely disabling very much that seem outside of the person's control it is very difficult to uh, get people to feel compassion and towards people who have sexual behaviors that in their mind they should be able to control. They, you know, you think like, I have my sexual behavior under control, why can't you? Or you tend to attach a more, they put a moralistic value to it. And I understand why, absolutely can see why that's the case. But it is very difficult to get people to get on board to be like more research and more, take a more compassionate, and I would say it's a more self-interested, compassionate approach because it would benefit society more if we paid more attention and gave more research dollars uh, to this area rather than taking the approach that we do, especially here in the U.S. and North America. Canada is a little different. And the majority of the, re the good research on this area, a lot of it comes from Canada. Um, like that measure that I that I mentioned comes as a Canadian measure and a lot of those those measures come from Canada because here we, we tend to have a more punitive approach to it. It's like, you know, once you do that, the solution to the problem is to lock these people up and forget about it. We have, uh, you know, civil commitment laws in which you can essentially commit a person for the rest of their life in theory so they can receive treatment. But in reality, a lot of these people are being basically not being treated and stay in confinement for long periods of time after their sentence is over without really um, having a resolution to their case and without having a lot of research going into what can actually make these people better or reduce the recidivism. So I think that's that's probably what what makes the difference is there's not a lot of there's very few, you know, there, I, I often joke that, you know, I'm going to be the, the, the candidate that is going to run. I was like, I'm going to run so I can raise more money in order to research pedophilia as opposed to the person who's going to be like, I'm going to run in order to, you know, have better highways and uh, or treatment for people who have depression, schizophrenia. It's just, it's, it's a very difficult cause to rally people for towards unless it comes from a law enforcement approach. You, you're more likely to get dollars dedicated to it if you are looking at it from a law enforcement approach rather than a treatment research preventative approach. That's really interesting because I think it speaks to um, you know, basically our ideas about how things should work with, it sounds like, um, that can sometimes interfere with the ultimate goal, which I assume most people would be on board in, which is preventing sexual abuse, but right. it sounds like it can interfere because of some of the way society thinks about sex and how people are supposed to be able to control their behaviors. And of course they should be able to, but the reality is people don't for a variety of different reasons right. and how to best help those people to manage like you said their behavior so that they aren't harming other people is that that seems like one of the most important ways to improve and prevent this stuff from happening so it's too bad that there are obstacles to that 
Yeah, it really is. And it is it is difficult that there are organizations that are out there trying to raise awareness. And then the, the Association for the Treatment of Sex Abusers, which is the premier research and clinician conglomerate association in North America for it. But even as an organization, they, you know, their their voices is not as loud as other organizations. And um, I think, yeah, you're you're hitting on on a good point, which is that we t we and by we I mean society tends to have a moralistic black or white approach to sex. You should be able to your um, to handle your behavior without appreciating the 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 wide heterogeneity of people who engage in these offenses. There are people who are indeed kind of very scary and unlikable characters that are psychopathic and that tend to be proactive and they seemingly seem able to control their behavior and engage in heinous sexual crimes. But then for every one of those, there are quite literally possible, um, you know, a hundred other ones that have been productive members of society and have been able to work and then engage in this behavior once later in their life. And it, they are completely different from that other person and understanding the behavior of one and the other one and the per the person who has, you know, has never had any problem and all of a sudden have a psychotic break. And during their psychotic break, they have hallucinations and they feel like they need to take off their, you know, take off their clothing and run around naked. It's completely different. And somehow it, when the intersection between law and psychology, when all these people kind of come in, in, into the net of law, they tend to be treated the same way and oftentimes seen the same way by society. And it's a disservice to all of us, but it is difficult to make that argument for, you know, to look to, to find nuance, nuance on this, on this area when it's, when I think in other areas, it's a little bit easier to make the case to be more compassionate and nuanced uh, than it comes to sex behaviors. So, yeah. Do you see, I mean, it makes me think a little bit about how attitudes have changed about somewhat law intersecting with mental health for things like substance use and substance abuse. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good analogy because for, as I mentioned earlier, like for treatment, that's kind of the approach that was being taken for the, the treatment of sex, uh, sex abuse, sex abuse and behavior would be kind of, uh, um, as we did with uh, substance use. But, uh, yeah, so maybe it's starting to turn the, the patient to seeing substance abuse. as not just a, as a as a character flaw, but rather as a complex psychosocial uh, psychosocial cultural manifestation that occurs very differently in, in in individuals. If we can take the same approach for for sex sexual behavior and sexual offending behavior, it would be helpful. But it is definitely an uphill battle for sure. Well, thank, I think I think that's helpful in giving a basic overview. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, Leo. Another thing I'm wondering, with some of the stuff that's been in the media lately and some of the discussions about some of these topics, just from your sort of perception or what you've seen, what are some of the most common misconceptions or oversimplifications that you've seen in some of these discussions related to things like sexual harassment or sexual abuse? Yeah. Ooh, okay. So that's a, that's a tough one. And uh, yeah, I think we've talked a little, I talked briefly with Katie about this before, but it's um the, the one that stuck, sticks out to me a lot is the confounding of behavior towards um, adolescents and being pe the person being called a pedophile and how the, the term pedophilic is used in the popular media and culture as opposed to how it's used in the in the DSM in the in the official nomenclature of psychiatry 
in psychology and um, how the law treats so treats these behaviors. So um, having a person who may be uh, engaging in just kind of go back to the the archetypal example. So a, a soccer coach, for example, there was recently a case like that. It was a soccer coach that ran away with one of his players and the player, she was 17 and the coach was decidedly older. So in his thirties or so, so definitely well within the scope of no, you, you cannot do that from a law perspective. Um, but that person would not meet the definition of pedophilia. And then, um, while technically by law standards, that person is a child official nomenclature on, on the DSM that would not that would not qualify as pedophilia. And I think that is a common misconception, the idea that a person who uh, has that kind of offense profile is the same as the person who is an adult, a male, who is offending and only attracted to, for example, uh, five or six-year-old prepubescent uh, males. That's totally different. Uh, so I think that the, the over-application of the term pedophilic is one of those um, often frequent um, frequent uh, misunderstandings in, in, in Paul in general I would say um, yeah is that I think. so with the situation the example that you just gave um, where would that interface in terms of mental health or, or versus legal you know because from my understanding the legal stuff can vary a bit by state um, yeah you know from the outset of it, we can look and see there's a power dynamic if he's older and her coach and she's 17, um, like yeah. she's technically under 18. So what would be like a more accurate way of describing that? Right. And actually, I should have, and I I, I kind of derailed my myself when I was talking about what I've been doing. I also, so after I finished at the state hospital, I also maintain a private practice in which I do psychosexual evaluations for people who are being accused of sex offenses. And the way it ties to this is because a lot of, when you think about this kind of offenses, you have to think about bring cultural issues as well. And when I look at this type of offenses, you need to think about, is this a, a pattern in which a person is only able to be uh, sexually attracted to and have relationships with people who are much younger than them or are they able to also establish and maintain relationships with people who are their own age and i, I talk about cultural issues a lot and I, I like to think about it in a much broader cultural perspective because a lot of the clients that i see i, I maintain a, a bilingual practice so i see the overwhelming majority of my clients are spanish-speaking and many of them the majority of them come from very rural parts of mexico and central america in where places in which marriages, actual marriages between teenagers, that's what we consider teenagers, so 16 to 17 year old girls to men who are in their mid 20s are common, are just the rule. So I see a lot of these couples that are coming, they come into the, in contact with the legal system because they go to the hospital, they have a baby, for example, they have a baby, they've known each other for both families, approve of the relationship, the family, it's sanctioned by the family, uh, by the families of both the, the girl and uh, the man. Um, they I think it's not a problem. They go to the hospital, they have the baby, and then they talk. They're doing the birth certificate. They ask her how old she is, ask how old he is, and immediately they call the police. The dude gets arrested, and he's very confused as to why he's being arrested, taken away from his partner and his kid with, on, with whom he's very invested and both families know about. 
and that it, it, then it becomes my job to show DHS, which is the Department of Human Services and the Child Welfare Division, to explain that whether this person is a, a danger, is this a person who engages in, has a predilection for selecting much younger, perhaps vulnerable teenage girls, or is this kind of a relationship that has a cultural sanction that, yes, while it may be illegal here in the U.S. by statute, uh, it wouldn't be if the, we if you just take the same people and transpose them into their own culture and their own country. It would be no big deal, and it, it's it's how things have been for generations and will be for a while. And they have been throughout the throughout the history of human culture. We've had this kind of disparity between men and women. We can ar argue or talk about whether that's good or bad. That's a bigger question. But establishing whether the person has this predilection for finding. Um, uh, adolescents who are, and that, that's perhaps the, the case of the soccer coach that starts looking for, and not to, sorry, not to <laughs> single out soccer coaches, but, you know, an adult who starts looking for adolescents on a regular basis and on, tries to find uh, at-risk youth, so girls that are runaways, uh, girls that are using drugs, and they start kind of just preying on these on, the, on these girls and actively looking for them. And we chart in, in the psychological literature, there's been pro and a proposal, there's a proposal for DSM-5 to create a separate category for men like that, because the majority are men, but we're sort of seeing interesting more cases of women doing that, but for hebephilia. So hebephilia would be uh, a category in which um, an adult is engaging in uh, sexual and romantic relationships exclusively with Adolescents. So there are definitely there there are individuals who are who have secondary sexual characteristics by all so by all uh, biological accounts we could say they are they have reached sexual maturity, but by our societal standards they have not reached emotional uh, maturity in order to be able to consent to an adult relationship, and there was a proposal to create that category of hepophilia. It didn't pass for many of the argument, the kind of the cultural arguments that I just talked about, but that's kind of where that person would fall under if they they seem to be kind of this predatory or you know the person who is only able to create establish relationships relationships with adolescents because of their own immaturity, insecurity towards having relationships with adults or simply not being attracted to uh, older, you know, peer uh, peer relationships. That's kind of the category where that would go. Well, it's really helpful having you explain it and you can kind of see why the media gets it wrong because there are a lot of nuanced elements to this and a lot of yeah. history. To, to how to best parse it and, and characterize it. So uh, I appreciate you explaining that. It's very interesting in your practice too, that, that this is something where you're trying to, I'm guessing, identify, like you said, if this person is uh, high risk or low risk, right. or, you know, what they fit into. So um, one thing that you mentioned is that there is just a lot of diversity and people who perpetrate sexual offenses, right, or sexual abuse mm -hmm. and, and those types of things. Despite those kind of different pathways, are there certain things you'd view as like diatheses or vulnerabilities that are common among them? Are there certain like, mm. environmental stresses that might contribute to uh, leading to these behaviors? Yeah, you know, that's a tough one because then we we would have to even talk about the heterogeneity of the behaviors, right? Because we, we you know what I mean? So we have to decide uh, what are we talking about? Are we talking about 
uh, rapists? Are we talking about people who are pedophilic? Pedo people? What are what are we talking about regarding the the behavior? And so right off the bat, one of the things that many people would say is that there's there's no profile, that there's really no profile for a sex offender. I'm like, to a degree, that's kind of true. When you start parsing out some of the uh, the be more specific about the disorders or the behaviors. Uh, so if we just specifically talk about pedophilia, which is an exclusive attraction to prepubescent children who have not developed any secondary sexu sexual characteristics, um, then there are some patterns that are starting to arise that are really interesting. So there's some literature suggesting that so there's an over there's a <laughs> there's an over representation of left handedness. So left-handed, yeah. So there's there's a representation of left-handedness on people who have uh, pedophilia. So and I always preface that with like that doesn't mean that if you have you know it's it's just it, it, there's a tiny increase statistically with a relationship with it, but it doesn't mean any you know there's a direct relationship. It may just be an indicator. We know that left-handedness is associated with a different type of brain organization. So it just it it's just another clue suggesting that these behaviors are not a moral flaw or a characteristic flaw, but there's a deep neurobiological uh, basis for these kind of, for, for pedophilia at least. It also has been found that um, men with pedophilia tend to have, because it is a overwhelming majority of men, uh, there you go, that's another, that's another marker, being a male, so just having XY chromosome just puts you at a higher risk for pedophilia. But beyond that, and then left-handedness also is associated with higher, uh, higher rates of uh, perinatal uh, complications. So they, uh, there's a lot of studies looking at um, perinatal complications among men who have pedophilia, and they found an overrepresentation of men who've had anoxia uh, during birth or some kind of birth complications that are uh, that again may be may be affecting brain functioning in some way. There's higher rates of uh, disorders associated with uh, social anxiety. Uh, so social anxiety and avoiding personality disorder tends to be higher. And uh, there is also shorter stature. Um, so they tend to, on average, be shorter in stature than, uh, than, than other men who do not have pedophilia. And to me, what that suggests is there might be something about the person's both physiological and hormonal and brain development that may be um, delaying there or, you know, or making them stuck. And I think the way I like to think about it is I, I think about my own development. You can, you, you know, we can all think about our own uh, romantic and sexual development. You probably remember when, when you had your first crush, it was around somewhere, somewhere in childhood. And I remember the first time that I felt that I thought a girl was pretty was in first grade. And I remember like, I was like, there was something about this other kid that was my grade. I was like, she's cute. And, but then as you grow, you continue developing crushes on people that are kind of your peers. And then as you continue, you uh, doing adolescence, you, you continue this pattern of romantic attachments to people that are more or less uh, at your own level of sexual maturity. There seems to be something, and we don't know what it is, that may be stopping these men from further developing on that developmental scale that keeps them at that um, stage of being, um, you know, attracted to pre uh, to pre adolescence. Uh, what is it? We don't know. There's been some interesting uh, fMRI studies suggesting that areas of the brain, you know, they show people who are 
teleophilic, which are adults who are adult, attracted to other adults, so you know normal age attractions, and then show pedophilic uh, men, uh, pictures of children and, uh, and adults, and the areas of the brain that are lighting up, if you will, for the adults for adults are not lighting up for the pedophilic men, but they are lighting up when they show them the children. Now, that correlation between brain activity and behavior, you know, you can make, it's a correlation, doesn't imply causation, but it does suggest, it's further, to me, it's further evidence that there is a, a, a deep uh, neurobiological underlying factor um, that is related to to the behavior, to, to pedophilia. Um, and if we look at other stuff, so if we start crossing to other behaviors, we just talk about kind of rape and molestation, then that that gets, uh, that's when things get a little more complex because you don't see as much of those markers that are, that have been identified with things like pedophilia. And again, those markers with pedophilia are there, but they're nowhere near 100%. They're just statistically higher, but they're not a 100% true marker of, of, of the behavior. So if you look at things like rape, then I go back to the, you know, framing everything to a psychosocial cultural perspective. Um, I feel like I'm forgetting something there, psychosocial cultural analysis, not all the spheres, um, in which <laughs> bio, thank you. <laughs> yes, of course. I've been talking about the thing bio, biopsychosocial cultural perspective, in which you can think as to why, you know, why rape arises. And I you can think about rape from an individual perspective and us as clinical psychologists, that's kind of our, our focus, our lens is to think about rape from, you know, an individual, you know, why does one individual tend to rape? But I like to, I like to also think about other perspectives in which rape occurs. Uh, and unfortunately, if you think about war, uh, rape increases tremendous, I mean, to epidemic levels whenever there's social instability and uh, rape is used as a tool of war, basically as a, as a, as a, as a war, as a, as a form of, of submission of other population. So you can see how uh, there are people who are very susceptible to rape as an individuals in a very stable, normal society and engaging those behaviors and understanding why that occurs for them is important. But then we can also broaden our scope and think about why does rape occur in general in a society, including various other factors. And there's that interplay between bio, psycho, social, cultural factors that provide, you know, that results in the in the behavior of the expression that we're interested in. So it's it's complex. Yeah, it, I think that one element that's kind of come out during the like the hashtag me too movement and things like that mm. it has been people in positions of power and allegations towards them yes. in different domains from um hollywood to chefs to academia to um congress and things like that where where does power fit into that i know that's kind of a complex question but what are some of the main areas where that can impact people because i'm thinking about what you're saying in terms of like individual characteristics versus kind of environmental factors yeah yeah it's you know, it just it just hit me as we were talking when you mentioned power because i do think you know there's a lot of um so the, the emphasis is currently on men and that as because currently the data indicated they are the, the responsible the overwhelming majority of them but i it just hit me that it, i wanted to see i'm like what if we try to reverse the point, like are, in what, when do we see women who are engaging in this kind of behavior and the ones that are, at least the ones that are publicized that we know about tend to be a lot of teachers who are having sex with, adoles you know, adolescents who are at their charge. 
So women who are somewhere in their mid-20s to 30s and have sex with boys, adolescent boys, who are usually post, uh, again, post-secondary uh, sexual characteristics, and they have a position of power. And I think that being in a hierarchical structure, having power over other people can can deal with individuals in different ways. And we probably all have heard the term that, you know, power goes to people's heads. And I really think that that is absolutely the case. And having graduate students definitely is an exercise. Haha, Brandon, uh, it's an exercise. On, <laughs> it's an exercise on humility. Like, I think that the, the people, the, the most successful professors are the ones that tend to be humble and try to be kind of just remember that. And the people who have who struggle more with having power are those who let that position of power all of a sudden um, give it that it fosters kind of their darker impulses. So we can think of, kind of like I'm saying that there's an environment in which we can think of I'm going to use war again, an environment in which, you know, rape might be occurring systematically as, as a tool of war. But there might be men within that system who refuse to engage in it because they have they have an internal abhorrence against it versus others who would never do it in, if it wasn't because of war and those who would be doing it even if there wasn't war. So I think we can think of power perhaps in a, in a we can use it as a we can use war as an analogy for power, which is a low grade level of a hierarchy and structure in which people who have the the diathesis or the vulnerability for towards engaging in abusive behavior of some sort, they're going to engage in sexual behavior. And I guess not surprisingly, you'll see in a lot of the descriptions of the men who have engaged in these behaviors, when they're described in the media, in addition to just having this uh, sexual misbehavior, they, they're often described as bullies or being overbearing and, um, you know, uh, very uh, intolerant of others and narcissistic and you can you go through the list of uh, prominent men who've been accused of these things and that that to me that seems to be a, a common theme certainly not for all of them but there's there's an element of uh, I'm going to go ahead and throw the, the, the word narcissism in there uh, this pathological need to kind of fulfill your own needs and not disregard the rights of others and put yourself above others in order to achieve your own needs and wants uh, that seems to be a common theme among these men who then when they're in a position of power, they they let, you know, that facilitates the, the manifestation of these traits. I don't know if that made any sense. Yeah, that I think that's very helpful. I really appreciate that. Um, maybe moving into um, kind of wrapping around a little to where you started. Yeah. I think um, Brandon and I are interested in, in, in light of the diversity, how do you what do you do in treatment or what can you do? Oof. Um, hmm. That is a good question. So again, yeah, it really depends on, on what you're talking about. So for things like pedophilia, for example, I think that the consensus around the scientific, the, the scientific world is that there's, this is something you can manage that you can get people to uh, under, understand and accept that they have these attractions. Okay. That's fine. But then how are you going to live your life in a way that you are not going to be engaging in these behaviors. And it's about motivating the person to, to find ways to channel their energy in a way that keeps them safe and society safe. And I think that might be the case for a lot of other uh, people who are engaging in this behavior uh, who offend um, habitually. 
but it really depends. I, uh, um, because if you have a person, like the, the case that comes to mind right now is, I have a, I've had individuals who had severe mental illness who engage in, you know, the, the, the charge, they're charged with something that is basically exhibitionism, basically, or they're you know, public indecency. And you would imagine that it's because they're, you know, going with a with a coat and then flashing people at the at the, at the metro or something like that, which of course happens. But the cases that I've seen are people they have a psychotic episode, and one of them actually thought that they felt electricity on their and their in their genitals. Uh, it was an it was a they had a, a hallucination, and they took off their clothes because it was really making them. They, they felt basically electricity, and they kind of took off running down the street. Police officer saw them running. They stopped him and that was a charge. And then another person was uh, drunk. They also have schizophrenia and they were peeing on the side of the road. And then that was a public indecency. So treating each individual as such and then figuring out what is the best approach for that person, uh, depend, given the presentation and the risk and the needs that they have will guide the responsivity. And that's actually one of the models that is the dominant models for, for the treatment of this disorder. It's called the risk needs responsivity model in which you assess the person's risk and their needs. So how are they high or low risk? What are their needs? Do they need treatment for psychological problems? Do they not? And that will dictate the level of response, how much supervision they're gonna have, how much treatment they're gonna get and adjust accordingly. So treat a lot of the treatment now tends to focus a lot on cognitive behavioral approaches, which tend to be best, um, you know, best supported for a lot of these disorders. There's a lot of, uh, it's called the, the good lives model. Again, kind of looking at taking a strengths based, based approach and like what are the person's strengths and how can we use their own individual strengths in order to help them deal with the vulnerability they have towards their towards their, their their offending behavior, but it really just depends on the person and um, what are what's their presentation. And unfortunately, like I like I mentioned, there's so there's there's a dearth of the resources and on on this area. So we haven't there's not a lot of data, systematic good data that sort of thing. There's a lot of meta analysis looking at. You know, I have a student doing his dissertation on on um, what they call themselves virtuous pedophiles, which are men who have never, who know that they have pedophilia, but they're, and they are alarmed by their own behavior, which is another thing to remark is that many of these people who have these impulses are very much ashamed and embarrassed and they wish that they did not have these impulses. So they have created these online communities in which they try to kind of support each other. They created essentially a support community online in order to try to, to treat, um, uh, their impulses or manage them and um, figuring out we, there's just not as much good data looking at you know what what works for whom in this area there's just really not a lot and we know for things like pedophilia giving people like things like antidepressants uh, or what's called uh, like a chemical castration something like um, using medications that block androgens or testosterone basically uh, in order to reduce libido tends to work well. Um, but even those are not, you know, they tend to be, mm, you know, in some cases not well received because they tend to have serious side effects. So it, everything comes with a, with a, with a minus. So right now the, as I mentioned, probably as kind of just bring it up where we started, there's just a lot that we don't know. Uh, and there's some hints as to what might work, 
but there's still a lot of a lot of work to be done in this area. That's helpful to know in terms of individual approaches, and I appreciate that. <laughs> Etta, maybe this is a too broad of a question, but okay. So what you just described kind of fits with the you know, the clinical psycho psychological or any mental health perspective, it doesn't have to be a clinical psychology perspective, but looking at individual bases, are there things within structure? So for example, in light oh. of, of allegations that have come out in Congress or within Hollywood, they've said, we need to, we need to do things differently here mm -hmm, to prevent mm -hmm. that. Are there ways to reduce that type of behavior for the people that you mentioned are, um, who, like you said, there are some people who would maybe perpetrate the sexual abuse under any circumstances, but there are others right. under certain conditions that would. Are, is there anything we as a society could do within conditions to kind of reduce that behavior? Yeah, you know, that's interesting. That's a great question. I think one of them would be accountability. So that accountability that you, in the sense that you have an environment in which people feel free to come up with these things and in a way that you can brings allegations in a way that is safe for them, anonymous if necessary, um, for, to protect their, but not just the accuser's rights, but also the accused, because again, we do live in a society in which the person is not guilty until proven so, uh, but because that would make the, the, the system more fair. But another thing that I, and this is, I heard, um, I heard another therapist, another person who does assessments here, and I, I think it's profound. He said, if you really want to make a systemic change is you really need to start having better sexual education in general and i 100 percent agree with that I, I didn't think about it but because it, 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 we like to think about curing like so we definitely have to treat that what's happening and uh, take an approach with the phenomenon as it's occurring so the offenses as they're occurring so i think accountability goes along with that but if we want to prevent if we want to get better at not having as many rates of this i think we look, need to look at other countries that do a better job of educating their population so i always I, i'm always making a point of pointing to uh the scandinavian countries who do a lot of things way better than us when it comes to the legal system and psychology and the intersection between the two of them and uh the netherlands and sweden norway they do a really good job of introducing uh sex education and if you look at sexual uh, uh the disparity between the sexes in those countries versus other countries, including ours, they're much lower the, for pay scale, for opportunities in advancement, for um, the, how parents, co-parent, all of that. The, the equality between the genders is just higher. There's better gender equality. And I think increasing gender equality here would make a big difference. And a good way to do that would be increasing um, sexual education in a way that is age appropriate so that we can, so we can socialize our, and I hate, you know, our, both our boys and our girls. So our boys, so that they don't think that they are above girls or that they, you know, that sex is a right or something that you're supposed to do. And they don't see sex. I think that in our society, sex is almost seen. And by the way, this is one of the factors that is looked at as a risk factor. Hostility towards women is a risk factor that is often looked at in, in some of these measures. But not, not seeing sex as a competition between the genders, but as rather an activity that, individuals come together to do and for to i think that some sex activists have said that we need to socialize our girls to be more assertive and not be as compliant and be uh more willing to speak up whenever 
these kind of things occur. And if we empower both our boys and our girls to see sex as something that is special and unique, but also and that that you're giving them the tools to be able to communicate in a way that does not lead for it's to me it's really difficult. If you, and you guys working in a college in an under in a large undergrad campus, you see this. You see, uh, you know that. that by age 18 is the first time that boys and girls are, or, you know, these adolescents are in front of each other and then they have to get intoxicated in order to be able to have intercourse or to get the work out the nerve to work, to ask somebody out. That is a formula for sexual abuse. And not surprisingly, we see this correlation between, you know, higher rates of uh, rape and sex abuse in campuses in which there's a lot of uh, alcohol in whenever, uh, sorry, football, but football season starts. So increased alcohol uh, or during the first week of uh, initiation for frats and sororities and increase of alcohol intake and sex abuse. So if we can figure out a way to reduce the amount of risky behaviors that um, our society engages in in order to have sex and talk about sex, I think that would go a long way. But that is a that is a super tall order when we think about you know, I think it's easier for some states, perhaps the more liberal states where I'm at. But I, I think about when I when I first immigrated to the U.S., we had we had a condom availability program in my high school in New York, and then when I moved to Texas, and I suggested it, I only got in trouble. Uh, so it was I, changing that attitude on uh, societal attitude towards sex and how do we deal with it, and how we talk to our young about it. We make a big difference, but that is a that's a tall order too. Uh, okay. okay, okay, Leo. So everything that you've covered has been super interesting, and we really appreciate it. And one thing that sometimes, especially with our guest parts, or even in some of our own episodes, that we like to do is leave our viewers with just a couple of really quick take home points that are just sort of just pieces of information they can walk away with from the episode and, and kind of have in mind. Everything that you've talked about is there something? Do you think you can condense it down into a couple of take home points for us? Yeah, so I think the main one would be uh, for people to remember the heterogeneity, that there's so much variety uh, in the type of sex offenses that people can engage in and that not everybody's at the same risk level. So while indeed there are people who engage in these behaviors frequently and are quite dangerous and we should deal with them accordingly, not everybody is. And there are many people, as I mentioned, that who have lived happy, productive lives in many ways that engage in these behaviors for multiple reasons. There are multiple factors that can lead a person to engage in these behaviors. And lumping people like that on with people who engage in these behaviors frequently and are super dangerous is not only not it's not only unfair, but it's also not helpful for us as a society. Because the, the people in the second group, they're more likely to respond to treatment, they're more likely to be engaged in it, and they're more likely to go back to have a happy, productive life that, in which they can perhaps make amends for the offense that they have engaged in. This is not, does not excuse the behavior. It's not saying that they shouldn't have some sort of consequences for it. But it's to think about, to, to take a more rational, nuanced approach to think about sex offenses and sex, this kind of behaviors as not exactly the same. So not the person who engages in this behavior is not exactly as the same person who engages in serial rape against uh, minors is not the same person who engage is not the same as somebody who, um, you know, molests somebody in their own family of the opposite gender. And I know they're both sound 
I can, I, you know, I go, I went into this line of work because I think you need to have a certain character in order to be able to kind of separate your emotional reaction from reason. So it is difficult to separate those, but as much as you can to just kind of recognize that they're both heinous in their own way or difficult to deal with, but the, as it relates to risk and recidivism, they're different and one is more manageable and certainly would be better served as a society if we take a more careful nuanced approach with each of these. Um, so I think that would be the main one. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's difficult to not let those scary, grabby headlines um, to dictate to let people think that's how all are and that's not the case. Uh, thank you. I, I think that really clarifies and, and distills some of the points that you made. I don't know if you remember this, but when we worked at that correctional facility, there was a staff member there who, while I was conducting a suicide risk, said something really inappropriate to me. I don't know if you remember that. I've been thinking about it a little bit because <coughs> of mm. the allegations. And the when I after that happened, I was kind of, uh, I don't know, a little confused and trying to process it. I walked back and told you what happened, and you immediately yeah. said, um, you know, that's reportable. That's completely inappropriate behavior. And that mm -hmm. was so helpful to me because I mm. clearly in my mind was like, you're right. And actually, once I reported it, found out that this person had also been saying things to other people who worked yeah. there. And so yeah. I think that your response in the immediate aftermath of that was really important. I just wanted to thank you for that. I appreciate, you know, thank you for, I do, and uh, thank you so much for saying that, Katie, that's, that's very sweet, and uh, I think, um, it, it, I guess the, the thing I would say is that, that, if we can maybe tie it a little bit to the Me Too movement, what has really struck me is how scary and confusing this kind of behavior can be, and there's, a, there's been a lot of, push, the, the people have talked about the pushback against the Me Too movement, and a lot, a lot of the pushback has been is like, well, if that happened, then why didn't you say something then? Or why didn't you like, and I don't think men, and in particular men, we do not, we are privileged in that we do not have any idea of what women have to go through on a daily basis um, to deal with this kind of behavior from our part. And when it occurs, it can be scary and confusing and most people just kind of want to get out of it and just not deal with it. And dealing with it is difficult and the system is not set up in a way that often is helpful to the victims. So what has been really interesting to see for the Me Too movement is seeing women who I think are you know strong and courageous and have achieved a lot in society for whom they've said, yeah, this happened to me too and I did not know what to do then. I felt frightened and confused and it was difficult to come forward. And I think, holy mackerel, if it was difficult for that person who has all of these accomplishments, I cannot imagine what it must be like for somebody who is an adolescent or who is uh you know uh, somebody who is a mom who has three kids and depends on this job where her supervisor is harassing her on a daily basis so yeah it it, it i think that, that that's actually a better point that you make right there is that to wrap it up is that it behooves a lot of us men to start acting more like better stewards for for uh, for you know to watch other men what they do and for women when they when this kind of stuff occurs so I think that's, I think yeah. that's a great place to wrap up. So thank you yep, so much. Works. This was really fantastic. So thank you. Yeah. yeah thank thank you. you so much, Leo. We, Very informative. My pleasure. Yeah. You're, you're an absolute natural podcaster. So we really appreciate having you on. Oh, thanks. Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council podcast, 
please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Jedi Council. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.